Welcome to EP Church for our third week of Advent, where we're going to be continuing our sermon series uh, focused on hope and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And what a season that we have where we desperately need hope, where when we look around us at our own personal situation or the situation of our country or our world, and often things seem so hopeless. But the reality is that we have a great hope. Today we're going to be looking at Luke 2, 22 to 35. Luke 2, 22 to 35. And last week, Pastor Harrison looked at Luke 1 and the foundation of our hope. Today we will be looking at the fulfillment of our hope through the lens of Simeon, a man who saw our Savior Jesus as a baby in the temple and praised God. So let's read together Luke 2, 22 to 35. And when the time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before the, he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that, thought, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that you have given us that we might have hope during difficult times. We pray, Lord, speak Holy Spirit through your word right now to each of our hearts and help us leave here more ready to live day to day with a hopeful heart as we trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2010, a group of 33 Chilean miners were trapped over 700 meters underground when part of a mountain collapsed and cut off all outside access to the mine. They were separated from the mine entrance by over five kilometers of winding ramps that went throughout the mountain underground, but all of these ramps were entirely collapsed. And so for these 33 miners who were trapped in a small underground bunker, there was no hope of getting out of this situation. They had no big drills that had been used to dig the mine. They had very little tools. They had very little food. There were ventilation shafts that went almost a straight kilometer up, but the people who had built the mine had forgot, forgotten to install escape ladders. And so there was no way that these men could get out. The, the ventilation shafts were, were, were much too narrow for them to be raised up uh, with, with a rope or anything like that. This was truly a desperate situation that for them was hopeless. They could not get out of it by themselves. We'll, we'll return to them in a moment, so don't, don't worry, I'll tell you what happened to them. But since Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, 
humans have struggled with a similarly desperate, hopeless situation. Sin separated us from God. It has twisted and broken God's good creation. It has twisted and broken us so that left to our own devices, we also are without hope. But also since Genesis 3, God has repeatedly promised to bring salvation and deliverance to his people. It's the Advent season, and so at home, every day we read a book focused on Advent called The King is Coming. And this book has a daily devotional focused on one of the many beautiful stories in scripture where God makes promises. It traces the biblical story from Adam and Eve down to Jesus and shows how the people of God throughout history have placed their hope in God. And after each devotional, it says the same little small poem. And my children are always like, it's the same poem again. But the first one focused on Adam and Eve goes like this, and it's almost the same in every one. It says, God couldn't remain. Sin drove him away. So Adam and Eve began to hope and to pray. God, will you bring us back one day? God, will you come back to stay? And that's the hope that's present throughout all of scripture and the hope that's finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in Luke 1 to 3, which we're focusing on this Advent season. The big idea we're gonna focus on today is that because God is trustworthy and faithful, we can live with daily life-changing hope. Because God is trustworthy and faithful, we can live with daily life-changing hope. And you'll see the three points we're gonna look at, a hope long delayed, a hope finally fulfilled, and a hope not fully realized. In our passage, we see Mary and Joseph, after Jesus is born, go up to the temple. They were going there for a specific ceremony that they would perform for every firstborn child, where they would offer a sacrifice to the Lord, as was commanded. But as they go up, they meet a man, Simeon. And let's read again a little bit of what is said. In verse 25 to 26, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him in the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In this description of Simeon, we see two important words that have deep Old Testament roots. that are talked about again and again in the Old Testament, and they had become central to the first century Jewish people. The consolation of Israel and the Lord's Christ. What are these things? What is the consolation of Israel? What is the Lord's Christ? Let's explore that a little deeper. The consolation of Israel could also be translated the comfort of Israel. The author Luke, in both Luke and Acts, draws heavily on this concept, and it's taken specifically from the book of Isaiah, that huge book in the middle of the Bible, 66 chapters, that we often just like, oh, I don't understand what's going on there, let's skip through it. But Isaiah is a beautiful book spoken to God's people when they were about to be taken into exile, and it talks again and again about the comfort God wants to provide his people. But to understand that, we need to understand what the first 39 chapters of Isaiah focus on. The first 39 chapters focus on the fact that Israel, God's people, have sinned again and again, and as a result, their relationship with God is broken. They are cut off. Isaiah 1-4, I'm going to be racing through a couple of scriptures, so don't worry about looking them up. Just listen and take it in. Isaiah 1-4, Isaiah speaking on behalf of God, says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. 
They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Estranged. They're cut off from relationship. So the whole first 39 chapters of Isaiah focus on that, that God's people are cut off from relationship with God, and God's going to have to punish and discipline them by sending them into exile. But in Isaiah 40, there's a turning point where it talks about a future comfort and restoration where the relationship will be made right again. Let me read a few passages in that Isaiah 40 to 66 focus. It says, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity, her sin is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God says, I'm going to comfort you. Isaiah 57, speaking again, he says, because of the sin of his unjust gain, I was angry. This is the Lord speaking about Israel. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he, was, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. You see, God is saying, I'm going to comfort Israel by healing him from his sins and bringing him back to that relationship with me that I saved him for. Isaiah 66, at the very end of the book, the Lord says again, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. God uses the imagery of a mother comforting a child. And he says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You should be comforted in Jerusalem. These are just three passages, but throughout Isaiah 40 to 66, the word comfort occurs again and again. God is promising Israel, I will bring comfort to you one day. And that's what Simeon was waiting for. Though the people of God had been saved from exile in Babylon hundreds of years before Simeon, they had returned to the land. Had they received the comfort? No. They were disappointed again and again as they saw what was happening around them, as they saw that they were an oppressed people, first oppressed by Alexander the Great, then the, per, the, then the different kingdoms, and finally the Romans. And they were like, is this it? This is the comfort God? No. So they hoped and waited. The other term with that we see here is Christ. What is the Christ? The Christ, another way of understanding it, is Messiah. It means anointed one. This was a concept hinted at throughout the Old Testament that there would be a person who would bring salvation, restoration to the people of God. Real quickly, a couple of passages that speak of this. God speaking to Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says, in a future day, I will raise up for you, a pro- I will raise up for you, Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So they expected a future prophet that would come and speak to them in the same way Moses had. And then in 2 Samuel 7, when God promised David that he would provide a son who would sit on the throne of David forever, these two concepts combined so that people expected a Messiah who would come and bring salvation and restoration to the people of God. And we see that in Isaiah 9, which is a very familiar passage for you around Christmas, where Isaiah 9 The prophet says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And again in Micah 5, the prophet says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. This is just four passages. I could point to so much more, but we don't have the time. There's so many passages that point to a future Christ, a Messiah who's going to come and bring salvation and restoration. And so these and many other biblical passages combined to give the Jewish people of Jesus' day the expectation that a Messiah would bring salvation, restoration, and comfort to God's people. And so that's what Simeon was waiting for. He was waiting for the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for the Messiah. And he had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. Simeon was hoping in the Lord's promises to provide that comfort and that salvation. He was looking forward to it. And he saw Jesus and the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, this is the hope that you've been waiting for. Simeon longed for, he hoped in God's promises, as did countless other believers for hundreds of years, many generations. And as they trusted in God's word and promises, they were steadfast, they were sure. But they didn't have a timeline. They didn't have a certainty. In fact, their situation was incredibly desperate. There were probably times where Simeon would turn to others and be like, where is God's hope? Where is the comfort that we're waiting for? But because God is trustworthy and faithful, they could live with daily life-changing hope, and so can we. But too often, we place our hope in other things. Too often, we put our hope in things that promise quick fixes, but won't produce results. Charles Ponzi was a scam artist who was infamous for the type of fraudulent investment scheme which now bears his name, the Ponzi scheme. Bernie Madoff, a stock investor, is a modern example of this Ponzi scheme type thing where you promise people huge dividends on their investment and then you start to pay the first adopters with the investments of later people. It's a scheme to get more and more money. Charles Ponzi did this for many years before he was finally caught and put in jail. And when he was finally caught, it had been found that he had scammed people of over $220 million in today's money. Bernie Madoff scammed people out of almost a billion. So Bernie Madoff definitely took it to the next level. But why were people placing their hopes in Charles Ponzi? He was probably very convincing, very charismatic, but they placed their hopes in him because he promised something, and they thought he could meet their needs. They were desperate, probably. It was during the period of the Great Depression, and so people were desperate for anything that would promise a better life. He promised get-rich-quick schemes, and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. But how alike are we to those people in our day-to-day lives? How quickly are we easy to put our hope in things that will fail us? After God's people were returned to the land of Israel, they went through centuries of disappointment. They had great hope that when they were restored to the promised land, that they would be a great and powerful nation once again, just like they were under King Solomon, King David. But they were repeatedly conquered and oppressed. And during Simeon's day, the Roman Empire, which was a brutal empire, had conquered them. 
tax collectors took as much money as they wanted. Roman soldiers could stop anybody and make them carry their uh, uh, military arms for miles. It was not a situation that seemed very comforting, I'm sure. But Simeon hoped in the Lord's promises, not in the situation or circumstances of his life and environment. See, in every situation, we can respond in fear or in faith and hope. If we respond in fear, we will become bitter, we'll complain, we'll become angry, we'll become hopeless. If we respond in faith and trust, we will respond in a way that puts our hope in God. We will have joy, we will have certainty, regardless of our specific situation, because our hope is in God, who will be faithful and true. When things are difficult and desperate, that's when, we, especially when we need to trust and hope in God's promises. It's easy to have hope when things are easy, but when things are difficult and desperate, that's when we need to hope in God. What have you placed your hope in? What counterfeit hopes, what Ponzi schemes are you trusting in right now in your day-to-day life? Examine your hearts. I encourage you, I challenge you, examine your hearts. Give whatever you're hoping in to the Lord. Repent of it and trust in him instead. Not only do we see a hope long delayed, we also see a hope finally fulfilled. Jesus was a fulfillment. A little baby was a fulfillment of that long delayed hope. Can you just imagine Simeon having the Holy Spirit tell him in his heart, this is it? And he's like, what? This baby that this mother is holding in his arms? I would have been shocked. But Simeon responds, in praise. In verse 29 to 32, we see him praising God and saying, I can now depart in peace. Why can he depart in peace? He says, sorry, he says in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He says, I have seen the salvation, the longed for comfort, that you have promised God and I can finally depart in peace knowing that your promises are sure and my people will be saved. And he says that this salvation has been prepared in the presence of all people so all the world will know, so that all the world, Jew and Gentile alike, will know and believe in the revelation of God and his salvation. We can dig into this even deeper and see how Simeon's song, just these three, four verses, are chock full of a whole bunch of references to Isaiah And it was obviously that Simeon was immersed in God's word and placing his hope in those promises. But Simeon sees Jesus, the Holy Spirit touches his heart, and he breaks forth into spontaneous, Bible-rich praise of God when he sees the long-awaited salvation present in Jesus the Messiah. Simeon's response to seeing the Holy Spirit reveal the promised comfort, the Messiah, was praise, amazement, wonder. But not only Simeon, Mary and Joseph are filled with marvel at all that was said about Jesus. Anna, who we don't read about today, but I encourage you to go home and read the next couple verses after this one. Anna, who was a righteous and devout woman who had been going to the temple every day, praised God as well at seeing Jesus. In verse 34 to 35, we see something that's somewhat challenging. Read with me, where Jesus, or Simeon says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. 
Skipping over the part that's just about Mary, it says, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What is he saying here? He's saying that Jesus is going to be a point of conflict, a point of crisis for every single person who encounters him. Why? Because they must either believe and hope in him or disbelieve and reject him. Have you been confronted by this point of crisis? Have you been confronted with Jesus and said, do I trust in him or have I turned away in rejection and disbelief? One of my most beloved professors in seminary, Hans Beyer, a beautiful German man, would always say that Christ brings us to a double point of crisis, a crisis of self-perception and a crisis of God perception. So when we are confronted by Jesus, we either reject God and think much of ourselves, or we think truly of ourselves and the sin we have, and we accept Christ. When we respond to this crisis, we enter into a life of joyful worship, which leads to hope, just like Simeon. Simeon, able to respond in this spontaneous praise, isn't because he sat down and was like, oh, I need to write a poem. No. His heart was one that was always worshiping God, worshiping in the temple. And so he responds in praise. My wife and I recently had an anniversary, and to celebrate that, I bought some flowers. And because it's always so sad to see the flowers wilt and die, I bought a plant this time. I bought a, a cyclamen, which if you don't know what that is, it's this beautiful plant with these lush, lush green leaves and these long stems and then little flowers that hang down from the top. And I bought it and I brought it home and I gave it to her. And we weren't really sure how to take care of it. Uh, I thought the directions weren't there. Uh, it, they were hidden down in the leaves. But we put it in our kitchen and it started to wilt, it started to droop. We're like, oh no. And then Hansun found the directions. How, how typical is that? The man doesn't find the directions and the wife does. But uh, Hansun found it and we realized that we need to water it almost on a daily, if not every couple day basis, so that the soil was rich with water and moist. And when we did that, it stopped wilting, it stopped drooping, and it, it sat up straight, and it's flourishing now. Where am I going with this? Our hope is not unlike that houseplant. We need to nourish it on a daily basis. Our worship nourishes our hope. Our worship nourishes our hope. And I've completely mixed up all my notes. Our worship nourishes our hope. A daily response of worship, prayer, fasting, scripture meditation will nourish and strengthen our hope. If we merely try to place our hope in God when we are in desperate need, then we will find that our hope has withered and died just like that houseplant was in danger of withering and dying. If we only go to it when we desperately need it, we will realize that it's gone because we haven't nourished it, we haven't strengthened it. We need to nourish it day by day. God's salvation is a reason to praise and worship the Lord, not just on Sunday when we come here, but every single day. We were a people who dwelled in darkness and now we have been saved into light. We were literally dead in our sins, cut off from any relationship with God but God has provided his salvation. He has brought us up from the grave and adopted us as daughters and sons of God. God has kept his promises from Genesis 3 onward that he has made. He has kept his promises, and so we should respond in praise 
every single day. So we, our lives should be ones of joy and delight that overflow in spontaneous praise, just like Simeon. Not just when we come here to worship the Lord, but every single day. And when we come here to worship together with God's people, are we coming to sing along, or are we coming to watch a performance? This is a talented worship team that's up here almost every Sunday, but they're not here to perform for us. It's not a concert. We should be singing along. And if you're sitting there saying, well, Nathan, I just, I just don't sing that good, talk to my wife or my kids and ask them how I sing because they'll tell you that it, it's not very good, but I sing, I sing loud. And if you're sitting there and saying, well, this mask just gets so annoying, I get it. My face is all sweaty every time, and I just, I don't like that, but it's worth it to praise our God, to strengthen our hope. We need this desperately. A recent Gallup poll illustrates this. It measure, it's a, re, a yearly Gallup poll that they do every November for the, almost 20 years. And this Gallup poll measures how people would say their mental health is doing. And it gives them the categories of excellent, good, fair, or poor. And this poll showed that across the nation, regardless of gender, age, party identification, marital status, household income, across the nation, compared to one year ago, there has been a huge increase in those or sorry, a huge decrease in those who say their mental health is excellent or good across every single category except one, except one. Those who regularly, weekly attend regular wor worship religious services, those people said their mental health is excellent or good more than they did a year ago. We desperately need to gather together as God's people and worship the Lord. I understand that there's people who can't come here on a Sunday morning, but that's why it's so important to set off a part of the week where you gather together, even if it's virtually, with other people to worship our God. Worship strengthens and nourishes our hope. Another Gallup poll showed that people in the age range of 18 to 24 in the past 30 days, 25% of those people responding to the poll seriously considered suicide in the past month. 25% of people 18 to 24 seriously considered suicide. People 25 to the early 40s, 16% of those people seriously considered suicide in the past 30 days. We are in a huge crisis as a country. Why? Because we don't have this hope. People don't realize the hope that we have. They've placed their hopes in Ponzi schemes and it's coming crashing down around us. Daily gratitude, daily worship will cultivate the hope that will see us through these times. Finally, we see a hope not fully realized. I don't want to steal Harrison's thunder because he's focusing on hope's future next week, but Advent should naturally cause us to think not just of Jesus' first coming, but Jesus' first coming. Advent is from the Latin, which means coming, arrival. The reality is that as we celebrate Advent here in 2020, Advent should call us to both look backwards towards Christ's first coming and forwards towards his second coming. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a short, small Advent devotional book called God is in the Manger, he says, the Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent. 
for the time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. See, we live in in in-between times, which create a tension between the already and the not yet. God's good spiritual gifts of salvation are already ours in Christ Jesus, but the full enjoyment of these gifts are not yet ours. We wait for Jesus' second coming when the good spiritual gifts will be fully realized and finally ours and sin will be no more. The Bible bears witness to this again and again. Just a few passages. Romans 8.15 says we are adopted sons and daughters of God, while Romans 8.23, just a couple of verses later, says that all of creation and we are eagerly awaiting our full adoption. Ephesians 1 says we have redemption in Christ, while Ephesians 4 says we have been sealed for a future day of redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul addresses the Corinthians and says that they are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, while in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul prays that the God of peace himself will sanctify them completely. Ephesians 2 speaks about how we have been raised up with Christ, while 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of a future day will be raised and our mortal bodies will be completely transformed. Do you see the already not yet tension? There are things that are true, yes, but there's aspects that we're still waiting for that final realization. We live in a time when the hope of the Old Testament, the hope of salvation, the deliverance, the restoration has been fulfilled, but not yet fully realized in every single day of our lives. We live in the already not yet between times. And so we can look forward to a day when those good spiritual blessings will be completely realized. Now, as we live in these in-between times, we can live with daily life-changing hope because God has again and again been trustworthy and faithful. One way to understand this already not yet tension is that we live in is to think of liberated, occupied France during World War II. Looking back, we know that the liberation began on D-Day, June 6, 1944, when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy, France was tasting victory. But the full liberation, the clearing out of the Nazis and other occupying powers, took much longer. It almost took a full year. Paris was liberated in August of 1944, but there were pockets of resistance and fighting that continued until May of 1945, days after the armistice which ended the war. In the same way, we live in the times between Christ's victory on the cross and his resurrection and his second coming when we will be fully liberated and sin will be no more and we will fully experience the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. How does this tension of the already not yet impact our daily lives? We are saved, but the salvation is still being worked out every day. We need to live in that hope. We need to have that hope every day. How do we do it? We have two beautiful examples in our passage, Simeon and Anna, who I I didn't read about, but in Luke 2, 37, it says, Anna did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She was immersed in scripture, in God's promise. Simeon was obviously immersed in God's scriptures. He could spout forth praise that was rich in the book of Isaiah. Are we immersed in the Bible so that we rely on God's promises in the already not yet and in the in-between times? We're immersed in something. No matter what we do, we are putting our hopes and our trust in, in anything. Media, news, music, books, movies, TVs, Those things plant seeds in our hearts. 
They give us things to hope in. Are we allowing those to overwhelm us or are we allowing scripture to overwhelm us and place our hopes in what scripture promises? Authority not yet should cause us to have more patience and compassion also for both ourselves and for others. We have been liberated like occupied France, but there are still pockets of sinful resistance in our own lives and in others. God is still working on us. The Holy Spirit is still working in us to kill those enemy forces that are part of our day-to-day lives. The final complete liberation and victory that Christ has already secured still waits for a future day. So we can hope in that. In conclusion, I promised I'd tell you about those 33 Chilean miners. They were trapped kilometers underground. They were in a desperate, difficult situation. They couldn't get out of it by themselves. Even if they'd tried for years and years, they couldn't have dug through that solid rock. It would take a worldwide effort of multinational corporations, NASA, mining experts, and the Chilean government to get those 33 miners out of the depths after 69 days below ground. But they were rescued because somebody outside their situation came in and got them out. Without Christ, our situation is even more hopeless. We were dead in our sins. A dead person can't save themselves. We were cut off from God forever. But the biblical witness is that in the grand story of redemption, we have a heavenly father, a mighty creator who makes promises and he will keep them because he is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And he has fulfilled those promises. He sent Jesus from outside our situation into our situation and he saved us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And we can remember that because God is trustworthy and faithful and has been countless times, we can live with daily life-changing hope this week, this month, this year. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a trustworthy, faithful God. Thank you that you make promises and you keep them. Thank you that when times are difficult, when situations are desperate, when we just want to throw up our hands in despair and frustration, you come through. You are trustworthy and true. You have made promises for each one of us to be our God, to save us, to bring us back to you so that we might worship you as we were created to. Help us turn to you in trust and reliance, Lord God, as we face our day-to-day challenges, placing our hope in you, knowing that you will answer. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that we might go out from here more equipped and more encouraged to live our lives for you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.